Jamila Rizvi, thank you for submitting to this involuntary interrogation. Look, I didn't think I had a choice but to submit. Trust no one. The level of sedition, anti-authority behaviour and advertiser-unfriendly thought crime has reached record levels, especially amongst Australia's elites. Treason. Luckily, the men and men of The Chaser have been commissioned by Border Force to conduct interrogations and sort out the subversives from the Patriots. Betrayal. In conjunction with ASIO and the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Protocols, this is Extreme Vetting with The Chaser. The Chaser. Charles, our guest today has written a career manifesto for millennial women. Do those words make you as scared as they do me? Well, I'm scared of millennials, I'm scared of manifestos, and I'm very scared of women. Jamila Rizvi, she's had an incredible career straight from uni to working for Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard. Then she ended up uh, being the editor at Mamma Mia for ages, communicating directly with millions of Australian women. Well, it sounds like she's had a really lucky run. Not just lucky, that's the name of her book, Charles. It's all about meritocracy, oh, feminism no! and change. The things we fear most, the things Peter Dutton has charged us oh, with stopping. We've got to get it. Let's keep her and her ideas in their place. Now, where did you grow up? Um, is that, oh, I feel straight away like that was a trick question and like I'm going to get in trouble. Well, I we've got up, a dossier I in, here. I, I grew up in Canberra, but I uh, spent some time as a kid in Malaysia as well. Mm. Let's start with Canberra because that's the more suspicious of the two. <laughs> why Canberra? Uh, wh- why would why anyone did, oh, move to Canberra? Yeah, well, I didn't choose, you see. My parents chose. Um, my father's family immigrated from India in the 60s and they moved to Canberra and they never left. I think they just didn't know any better because they never <laughs> went outside of Canberra. And then my mother moved to Canberra for university and she met my dad at university and, again, never left. Are they aware that there are other places in Australia? Look, they are now. Um, apparently, it's still not enough of a pool, despite both their children leaving very, very quickly as soon as they could. Not enough of a pool to get them to leave, though. They're still there. How was it like growing up in Canberra? It was clean and quiet <laughs> and white, and there were a lot of roundabouts. <laughs> what about fireworks? Look, I wasn't a fireworky kid. Look, like in Canberra, when you grow up there, the fireworks are normal, right? So it's far less exciting than it is for all the people that come from outside of Canberra to get into it. Because it's the one thing, it's completely dull until you blow your arm off. <laughs> I imagine as a you know, kid in Canberra. W- there was a lot of like teenagers putting fireworks in letterboxes, bringing fireworks to school. There was always like a little talk around Queen's birthday weekend about how you weren't allowed to bring the fireworks to school and some kid always did and let them off in a science lab. Not me. Experiment, I suppose. Sounds quite Not fun. <laughs> well, speaking of that, I mean, was there ever any incident in your childhood when you got in trouble or were you naughty? What was the naughtiest thing you did as a kid? I was not a naughty kid. I was such a well-behaved child. And I'm not just telling you that because you're interrogating me. I was like ultimate good girl. I was just looking for approval from day one. Like naughtiest thing I ever did was probably use a swear word at age 17. 17? Yeah, I was a pretty good kid. And were you well-behaved because you were a girl? Mm, Probably. I think that was a big part of it, right? um, Growing up, I think 
daughter of migrant family as well, you sort of, there's quite a pressure to be like everyone else and to deliver on what your family's given up for you, all that sort of stuff. Um, and definitely, I think there's a bigger pressure on girls than there are, is on boys to subscribe to a particular societal standard. And I definitely buckled down and was a well-behaved girl from, from day one. I wanted people to like me. So is that in terms of moral conduct and deportment or about doing well at things? I don't know how my deportment was. I don't, don't know what that <laughs> word means. Isn't that what girls used to have to do? Yeah, you would like when they were putting the books on your head and like walking like nicely down a corridor. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I was any good at that. Like I was in brownies. Oh, really? Yeah, like um, always lend a hand, dib, dob, something, something. Um, but I used to get in trouble because I didn't have the shiny shoes and I bit my nails. And that was the sort of thing that they used to check for little girls. While the boys were out learning how to make a fire and cool stuff, we got our fingernails checked and whether or not we had nice clean hair. I so always had nice clean hair. I've got to put something down in this form, Jamila. So the naughtiest thing that you did as a child was slightly dirty shoes and you bit Bitten your nails. fingernails. Yep. Still bite them. Goodness me. That is a bit of a security risk though. Dog. Fingernails? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They can be quite sharp, can't they? Oh, yeah. Especially. Well, they, they make you cut them for um, when you play netball and stuff so you don't scratch people. We haven't thought about the, da- the danger of scratching actually, have we, Charles? No, we haven't. Maybe we should have a war on fingernails next. I'll put, it, lo- I'll put it to data. We're always looking for something to crack down on. Hey, now, Jamila, Jamila you, in your book you actually say you made a decision one day to become a good girl, to become the likeable girl at school. I definitely made the call because I wanted to be popular as a kid. And I remember thinking this is something that's really important to me. This is something, this is the way that you get accepted. And I think I always felt like a bit of an outsider at primary school. I felt like I was looking in on how girls were supposed to be and trying to measure up to what the expectations were. And interestingly, as an adult, I've now found out that whole lots of numbers of women feel like that. In fact, a whole lot of kids feel like that too. So at the beginning of high school, you then made the decision, did you? Yeah, I think I made the decision that I wanted everyone to like me in a big way and a, a really kind of um, deliberate way and a choice to do whatever was necessary, I think, to become liked, not just by, you know, um, my peers, but also by teachers and people in positions of authority. Because I think we place a really major burden on girls and young women to be likable above all else. It's more important to be liked than it is to be kind or respected or a winner or a good person. Being liked is sort of the number one for girls. We're actually big fans of Outsiders now at Border Force. Since Mark Latham and Ross Cameron started doing their thing, mm. it's the new buzzword. So that that's a tick from me, actually. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And, and what outsiders they are with all their... You know, yeah, media contacts and launches at the Intercontinental. It's um, Alan Jones. Well, I worry about them because I worry they just don't have a voice in our society anymore. They've <laughs> Won't been put someone on the side, listen to men? They've been put on the sidelines, you know? This is a very good point. I mean, There's no places for white, straight men to gather anymore except like boardrooms oh, and parliaments. I'm and, so glad to know, hear you say that, Jamila, because you've written a book about um, women needing to communicate more, about being disadvantaged in the workplace, all that kind of stuff. Where's the book for men? Mm. Why hasn't someone written a book about how men can be heard in the workplace and in the media and everywhere else. Well, hopefully Mark Latham will hear your hopes and prayers, Dom. Well, I think his book comes out in October, so I, I think we'll, we'll be able oh, to do that. Written, has he written another book? Gee, he has. He it's has. called oh. Outs- Isn't it Outsiders? It's called Outsiders. Yeah. Oh, it was yeah. literally launched by Alan Jones at the Intercontinental Hotel. Do you know, when I was at university, I was one of those annoying student politician types and I was a member of the Young Labor Party and we used to use Mark Latham's first book as the wooden spoon prize at Trivia Nights. 
Oh, wow. So you called it early because there was a lot of the party that thought he was this wonderful new third way intellectual, but you yeah, actually realised. We thought. I think we thought that briefly as well, but then we <laughs> moved on. So let's talk about that uh, as well, because you were in the labour movement quite early and Charles was as well, and it, it didn't turn out well for him at all. But you quite quickly found yourself in student leadership positions and then working for some very senior politicians. Why did you want to get involved in all of that world? Was it about being good again? Uh, perhaps. I think it was, um, to be honest, I had a high school teacher. I was ducks of my year in drama and economics. And I had a high school teacher say to me, the only way you can combine those two things is to go into politics. And I took that quite seriously. Um, so first day of, before the first day of university, it was an orientation week. I joined the Labor Party, um, age 17 and something. Um, and I think for me growing up in Canberra, politics and policy was a really obvious place to go. And I, I really enjoyed it. I, I think, um, I was very achievement focused. I was very focused on what you could do for other kids at university and I really enjoyed that kind of work and that sounds so um, hallmarky and wanky and naive and it is, but I did really enjoy the work. I enjoyed what I did and then um, back when I was this sort of young, confident person who thought I knew everything and absolutely knew nothing, I cold called the Prime Minister's office because I thought Kevin Rudd should give me a job. I love the um, the drama as qualification, Jamila, but I've never heard of a politician who knew about economics. <laughs> I think you were misadvised there. So you called Kevin Rudd's office and uh, ha- how quickly was it before you found yourself working there? Uh, I think it was within a month. Yeah, it all happened very quickly. Um, I went from, I was still at university. I went from being student president and dealing with, you know, important issues like who had graffitied the concrete in Union Court and who would have to clean, pay to clean it up, me or the vice chancellor's budget. Um, I went from that to working in Kevin's office and kind of that big contrast of, you know, being a uni student and rolling out of bed around 11am and going to class in your rug boots and then suddenly ending up you know, in this job that you had to get up at quarter past three in the morning and you were what? working by quarter to four. Yeah. I heard quarter past five for Kevin, but not quarter past three. I woke up at quarter past three every morning. I was at Monica News Agent by quarter to four. This is back when people read actual hard copy newspapers and I would collect all the newspapers in the country and uh, like one for each, you know, state and territory and then a couple of uh, papers for Victoria and New South Wales. And then I would summarise them before Kevin woke up around 5.45 and the team would get together on a phone call. Did that include the NT News? Yes. And so did you have to summarise... That was always my favourite. ...the latest croc attack for Kevin? (laughs) Um, Usually with the NT News, I will admit, I used to just say what was on the front page. I didn't bother reading the whole thing. (laughs) The one light moment. So had the person before you um, left due to burnout... Uh, I think the person before me, the person after me, the person all around me and me, I think we all left due to burnout, to be honest. And, and there were a lot of young women in Kevin Rudd's office, weren't there, at that time? Yeah, there were a lot of young people generally. I think the office split was still mostly men, as politics tends mm. to be. Um, women tended to dominate, I found, when I worked at Parliament House. Women would dominate the more junior positions or the administrative positions, and men tended to dominate the senior decision-making roles and particularly the the strategic political roles. And how much of a culture shock was that for you coming from student politics where, I mean, in my day, student politics was entirely dominated by women? Mm. Yeah. 
Um, massive culture shock, I think. Um, and I think a big part of it came from the fact that the schooling environment, and that extends to universities and TAFEs beyond sort of um, uh, immediate schooling, um, the schooling environment is one that is very focused on objective assessment of people's skills. So you're doing exams, you're doing essays, they're being marked, often blind marked at university. So who does well and who doesn't do so well is really about how hard you work a lot of the time. Um, of course, there are some, still some structural issues there, but it's far more objective than the workplace. So I think often young people find that when they get to the workplace, young women in particular get a bit of a shock because suddenly you've got this system and this structure that isn't based on objective assessment anymore. Um, and we forget, I think, that workplace structures generally are still very much male structures. Workplaces were built by men and for men and women have forced ourselves into them in the last 40, 50 years in big numbers and that's fantastic, but that doesn't necessarily mean the structures have changed. Uh, sorry, Jim, can we just step out for a moment? Yeah, sure. Charles, I'm very worried about this mm. because what she seems to be doing is arguing for meritocracy and more oh, representation for women. I know. And if that logic goes through... Then what's going to happen to Dutton? Peter Dutton can't be the minister. Yeah. He probably wouldn't even be in parliament anymore. No. This yeah. is a code red. Yeah, I think so. I think we've got a genuine subversive on our hands. All right, well, let's, let's just find out some more. But um, I, I think I'm just going to surreptitiously text Dutto himself. I think it's come to that. I think probably what we should do is do a bit more mansplaining. We haven't done any mansplaining that's yet. That's true. Yeah, yeah. that's... Why okay. not? I don't know. Yeah. Thanks, Jamila. Um, are there any concepts you want explained now that you've got a couple of men here just uh, who've done a lot less study and thinking about these issues than you? Yeah, We'd be sure. very happy. Yeah, sure. I, I think maybe like if you've got some time to talk to me about how hard your life is um, and how much you feel that jobs that used mm. to be yours are now being taken it by is, women. It's true, yeah. Yeah. It is true. Yeah, Border Force Interrogators is one of the few jobs we could get actually these days. <laughs> And some say that it's a, a, a competency issue. Some say that it's because the chaser's heyday was something like what, 20 years ago now. But uh, I think it's because of women, personally. So um, maybe put that in your next book. Yeah, women, people of colour, you know, just pick who to blame. Now, one of the things in your book that I'd, I'd like you to explain a bit better, Jamila, because I didn't quite understand, I'd never sort of come across the concept before, was self-doubt. Um, yeah. What, what's that? So what my book looks at is that, this idea that women go through the education system feeling like equals. And then when they enter the workplace, they certainly aren't equals anymore. Mm. And that what that does is it creates a sense of self-doubt because you immediately look inwards and you say, well, there must be a problem with me. I'm not good enough. I'm deficient in some way, mm. rather than recognising that the problem is actually a structural one. Yeah, see, that's where you've lost me. I, I don't understand. <laughs> well, as it happens... I can relate somewhat to this because when we were in high school, I read all the things oh, in the book no. about being judged by your appearance. And Charles actually uh, <laughs> used to do a TV show on the monitors inside the school. And um, it was an all boys school. And there was one uh, sketch that he did. He got me up to do live in which the punchline was that I was the ugliest <laughs> man in the world. Um, so That's awful. I began having body but, image issues you know. and self-doubt, which continue but, to you this know. day. And I still weep about it at times, particularly. Um, it was I, an it was an evidence based approach, Dom. I stand by my research. So I I related some of the themes in your book, and if women feel the way that I've felt since that moment, I can understand why you wanted to write about it. And you spent twenty years working alongside your tormentor. Longer, actually. Yeah, <laughs> it's since about twelve. Um, I'm I'm scarred forever. No, I think she's talking to me, Dom. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I still have to look at you every day. 
That's just really mean. I don't feel. I don't feel very good sitting in here anymore. I think it's a bit mean. So when you say it's structural, Jamila, um, yes, what do you think can be done about it? I think there's a whole lot of things we can do about this. It starts with policymakers, of course. Policymakers like yourselves and influencers on government. It's um, so flattering. I've ever been called an influencer before. Yeah, an ugly influencer, but an influencer nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it was there for the taking. There's a whole lot of things we can do, particularly in government. I think there's a lot of work that can be done in terms of finding ways for women's participation in the workforce to be furthered. We've got a current government that says they really want to boost women's participation in the workforce. They want to see what women could add to the economy if they were participating in equal numbers to men. But they don't really have a plan of how to do it. We're not looking at making childcare more affordable, for example. We're not looking at improving paid parental leave. We're not looking for quotas of women in higher positions. We keep thinking that this is just something that will take care of itself, that will slowly just plot along towards equality. But if there's anything that the last sort of three, four, five years have shown us, Trump, Abbott, is that equality isn't a done deal. That's Let, not just something that's going to come in the future. To be fair, Malcolm Turnbull's put in at least one or two more women in cabinet than um, Tony Abbott had. That is true. And I think they're still behind the Labor government before them. And even them, we're well below 40%. And so as someone who's been part of Labor in the past, do you think the other side would do better? I'd like to think so. Um I think governments of both persuasions have not done as well as they could have when it comes to the representation of women. I think Labor's taken some pretty bold moves. They've they've actually implemented affirmative action and they've had a lot of success with it. But I think while that has started to bring about change, there's still a cultural change that's sort of dragging its feet along in the Labor Party. This stuff takes time and I get that it takes time, but we've got a gender pay gap that's been pretty much stagnant for the last 20 years. It's just sort of bobbed up and down around the 20% mark. And I think there's a point where you've got to say, I'm sick of stagnation. I'm sick of this being the same way it is and thinking that's just how things are. And you've got to be willing to make some deliberate changes that are going to shift it. So you've been out talking about these issues around the country. You've done a lot of interviews and things like that. What's the reaction been from women? The reaction from women has been absolutely phenomenal. Um, I've really, really enjoyed it. We've been doing sellout crowds, like hundreds of women in every capital city and in a lot of the regional towns as well. And it's exciting to see how many women are responding to the message of this book. Um, And particularly interesting to see how many women in different professions respond to it, right? Because I was quite concerned that one of my um, limitations in writing this book would be that I've worked mostly in politics and the media. And I was like, well, maybe... Maybe these problems that I'm seeing are limited to the spheres that I'm working in. But then you meet women who are geologists and are down mines in Western Australia and saying, yep, that's happened to me too. You meet women policemen in the Northern Territory who say exactly the same thing. You meet women in Brisbane who work in finance who say the same thing. So this is definitely a universal of experience of women in the workplace. So it's called Not Just Lucky. And basically the premise of it is that women tend to call themselves lucky when actually they achieve sort of quite good things. Do you think you were lucky to get the contract? (laughs) Um, No, I don't. I think it was due to my own hard work and determination and absolute brilliance, my friend. Can we just take a moment again? Sorry, (laughs) Jamila. Charles, I'm beginning to think that Jamila's agenda might actually be the patriarchy itself. And I don't want to scare you, Mm. but if it wasn't for the patriarchy... We would definitely we would not definitely be here. Not have careers. I, yeah. I don't. We probably unemployed or or worse. Or working for Jamila or something, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be in some sort of junior role. That is possible. Yeah. I, I think we'd be 
cleaning the toilets at Mum Mare or something. Mm. Um, okay, this is, this is yeah. quite worrying. So what are we going to do? I mean, normally Border Force would just lock them up on a desert island, but I think there's too many women. No, they've got the numbers. Yeah, yeah they've got the numbers. I think what we should do is bring out her ideas more and understand them mm. so that when <sighs> women inevitably take over, we can use the same techniques to re-establish ourselves. Oh, I see. From, oh, right, yes. From being outcast as we deserve. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's try that. All right, we'll give it okay. a go. Now, if I were advertising on this podcast, I think this is the note at which I'd love my ad to appear. Fucking advertiser-friendly ads. So, an issue like the gender pay gap, how do you make things more of a meritocracy in, in the workplace? And you, you've, you give some very practical advice to women on what to do. Yeah, so my book makes the point that I think this is a problem with workplaces, but at the same time, women have to exist and they have to move forward in these workplaces, mm. in these unfair systems in the meantime. So I try and lay out a whole bunch of tips to for women to kind of reclaim their own confidence and understand what's going on in the system. So I talk about the importance of managing up. I talk about how to be a good boss. I talk about why it is that we have this myth that women are their own worst enemies in workplaces. And there's a whole bunch of sort of practical recommendations on how to feel more confident. Have you ever worked for a terrible boss who happens to be a woman? Uh, <laughs> I have worked for good bosses and bad women and men. I am of the very firm belief that shittiness of character is evenly distributed between the genders. It's a very diplomatic... Uh you're going to be very hey, good when you went to politics. For a while. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> terrifyingly quick. Uh, let's talk about, in a completely unrelated way, your time running Mum Mare, because that was a fascinating workforce where, um, and I went in there and um, as an undercover agent to try and, and understand. And yeah. it, there were a lot of incredibly bright, clever women there who seemed only to have men around to fix the computers. Um, how did that workplace function? <laughs> Unbelievably well, I think, um, except for when the computers didn't work. Um, look, I, I loved working at Mum Mia. I was there for four years and I was there during its kind of big growth phase. Um, we went from like, I think, three or four of us sitting around in the editorial room to sort of 45 plus um, in a few years. So it was a huge expansion. And as you say, it was, it was mostly women. I'd say a couple of things about um, what you just mentioned, though. Firstly, women aren't immune from sexism either. Um, it's not just men who are sexist, women are as well, and often towards themselves. And it often manifests in this idea of internalised sexism, that the world's told you women aren't as good as men, and so you start to believe it in your own way, and you act on that in your own way. So, unfortunately, you still do come up against that lack of confidence in women-only environments. There are still women who beat themselves up and worry about how they're performing when they're doing a great job. One of the things I remember at Mamma Mia was this chorus of sorry that used to echo around the office, that... We were always sorry. Someone would be sorry for grabbing you for a meeting, sorry because they were away from their desk at the bathroom, sorry that they were asking for annual leave. And it was almost like they were tripping over each other to be as polite as possible when really the things they were sorry for were perfectly reasonable things to be doing. As the business grew and, be and became more successful, were there changes when you had to bring in all these layers of, of management and your role uh, changed as well? Yeah, it did. Um, and, and it kind of had to. I, I think I came in as managing editor and then 
um, ended up taking over from Mia as editor and in the end was editor-in-chief across a bunch of websites. But I think in a startup, that's kind of how it goes. Um, a startup that's doing well is a startup that's growing. And so your role sort of necessarily has to evolve. I think um, I think it's Sheryl Sandberg who talks about startups being like a rocket ship and that when you're offered a spot on a rocket ship, you don't complain about which seat you get. You just get on. Um, and it's kind of an all hands on, I was about to say all hands on deck, but I'm moving from the rocket ship analogy to the ship analogy and that's a bit painful. Um, but, but that's kind of the nature of a startup, I think, is you stop thinking about really concrete job descriptions and what's expected of you in the moment and you do what needs to get done. I guess one of the potential ironies of Mamma Mia thinking about it is that it's defined in terms of motherhood. It's about so much more than that. It's about women in the workforce and every aspect of, of a women's lives. But because of the pun, and because Mia Friedman's a mother, it's called Mamma Mia. Um, how does motherhood play into all this? Because obviously that is one biological difference that at this stage can't be erased. What does that mean for women in the workforce? So we know that women are treated unequally in the workforce regardless of whether they have children or not. So the data tells us that in Australia, on the first year out of university into the workforce, women earn on average close to 10% less than men. On average. And this is first day out right? There's no reason for women to be earning less than men. And yet that's the case. But that gap is then exacerbated by motherhood. Motherhood comes into play and it has a big role. So Australian women, our salaries peak on average at age 31. Really? 31. I am 31 now. I have apparently peaked and it's all over, friends. Whereas men peak almost a decade later and at a much higher figure. Because you're talking about having a lot longer in the workforce to build up your skills and experience. And that gap just keeps getting bigger and has a greater impact as a woman's life goes on. So it means that when women retire, and I'm talking today, 2017, Australian women retire with half the superannuation of men. Half the superannuation of men. And we live longer, almost a decade longer. So that superannuation has to keep us going for longer. One of the fastest growing groups of people living in poverty in Australia are women aged over 65. And of women aged over 65 who are single, more than two thirds of them live below the poverty line. So this gender pay gap stuff isn't just a little quibble about an extra woman on a board here or there. Um, these aren't little issues. These are really, really major issues. And motherhood plays an incredibly strong role in there because we have these assumptions about the roles of men and the roles of women that are very much tied up in the idea of parenthood. You've had a baby, haven't you? You're a mum. I have. Yeah. I have. I am a woman and I have had a baby. And have you, have you found that, like, what's that done to your career? Oh, screwed it. Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, it's horrible, isn't it? He's lovely. But yeah, it does. I mean, it does disrupt it. I mean, and in, in ways that are negative for men and women, right? One of the things my husband experienced when our little boy was born was there was this expectation that I was, of course, taking 12 months off at least, minimum to look after our kid. Um, whereas the expectation on him was that, you know, like he'd take a day out and then come back to work. You mm. know what I mean? And he was a dad who wanted to be more involved and he had a wife who had extreme pressure on him to be more involved. Um, and yet his workplace didn't really know how to accommodate that because they hadn't come up against a bloke that wanted that before. So this stuff hurts men as well as women. Um, some of the data in this space is absolutely terrifying. So for women, there's this great study out of uh, one of the Queensland universities that shows when women become a mother, it actually decreases their likelihood of being hired or being given a pay rise in the future. They're considered less dependable. They're less likely to show up. They're not prioritising work. Whereas when men become fathers, they actually 
increase their chances of being hired. They're more likely to get interviews. They're more likely to be promoted because we associate parenthood for men with settling down, being more responsible. He's got a family to support. So exactly the same thing, parenthood, increases men's chances of being hired and decreases women's chances of being hired. Dom, can I see you for a sec? Yeah, sure. Sorry, Jamila. Charles. Sounds like the patriarchy's going fine. I, I don't think we're going to have to worry too much, actually. Yeah, the stats, I mean, the arguments are very convincing. I feel very, very guilty about it. Mm. But, but um, also sort of there have been decades reassured of, a bit. There have been decades of, of feminism so far, and it seems as though very little has changed. Mm. Yeah. We might be secure in our extremely um, unmeritorious jobs. Yeah, we, just, we probably just have to enlist Jamila to be less effective in, in her... Yeah, how do we do that, though? of feminism, yeah, I don't know. I know. Yeah? I've got an idea. Jamila, um, now you've identified some massive problems yeah. which mm. seem to require an incredibly radical change in the way that our society works. I mean, it's a very convincing argument that you have. Thank you. Have you considered going into politics to try and change things? <laughs> Look, I loved working in politics and I would love to go back one day, but right now I cannot think of anything I'd less rather do. Because you worked with, with Julia Gillard. I uh, did. Who discovered, and you write about this in your book, that um, she was treated quite differently and, and quite horribly. And um, a lot of people think that, that that might be a disincentive for other women to get in, involved. Is that the case? Yeah, I think it was. I think watching what Gillard went through, um, because there was such a magnifying glass put on how women are treated in politics, I think that probably put a whole lot of women off. Um, that makes me really sad because I think we need more women in politics, not less. And I think we need more women prioritising the idea of being involved in legislatures. Like those rooms and those decision-making forums are only going to make good decisions for women if there's more women represented in them to talk about the experience of women. So for me, I think that's something we've almost got to set aside. And I love the fact that Julia Gillard has been so vocal and open in saying her experience, despite the tough stuff, was a good experience, that she would do it again and that she has no qualms in encouraging other women to go into politics. Do you think she was right to roll Kevin Rudd? Oh, big question. Um, I don't think it's all on her. Like, I know ultimately it comes down to that personal decision. I know that ultimately only she could make that call. But by the time she made it, there was such an overwhelming pressure on her that had come from the factions, that had come from the unions, that had come from within the party, which had come from staff, which had come from the media. I actually don't think she had a choice. Like, at that point, it was so disrupted and so messy before she was even entertaining the idea that she kind of had to do it. Um do I think the Labor Party and the Labor government would have been better off if that hadn't happened? Probably. Um, do I think she was a great Prime Minister? Yes. My uh, kid's school is calling. I've just got to take this call. Sorry. Hello. <clears throat> Sorry, Jimmy. Charles has actually been called away by his, uh, his child's school calling um, because some men do have to actually do this stuff. That makes me very happy to hear it. You know, can I give you a really good practical tip? for sure. making things more equal in households uh, where you've got kids. Um, when you go to put your kid in childcare or into school, you have to nominate who is parent one, and that is the parent who is contacted in case of emergency. Make that the bloke. That's but, my advice. But then the bloke will get calls like that, Jamila. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really good for them. So, for example, my husband is parent one at childcare, and that means <coughs> my husband is responsible for 
stupid hat day and pyjama day and knowing when we have to fill out the childcare rebate forms and he gets the phone call when my kid falls over and breaks a finger or something, something. And I think that's really good for him because he doesn't have to deal with it every time because sometimes he can't get out of work and has to call me to get help, but he has to ask me. He has to ask and he has to go through that little mental process of this is my job and my responsibility. And it drives all the childcare workers mad because a lot of the time he's useless, but I don't care. Charles, um, in your contact details for your schools, Mm. for the kids, are you parent one or parent two? I'm parent one and I've just received a call from them and I've forgotten to pick them up this afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got to go. I I literally have to go and... um, Okay, I just that. just hang on for Go. a second, Jimmy. This is the situation, Charles. You realise when you walk out the door, we've lost the argument, don't you? We've lost the. Why have we lost the argument? Aren't I being a good feminist by, yeah, by being Charles, parent I, number I, one? I, this is glorious. Oh no, you're right. This is glorious. Oh no, you mean you were on the side of feminism? Oh yes, just, I should have got my wife to be parent number just one. Leave. You're a living, breathing just, example of just what I want. Get out of here, Charles. I, I've got to go. Um, right, but also, I'm, don't forget your kids. They are important. I'll handle the rest of this chat. Uh, I'm not a very good parent one if it... (laughs) Yeah. Come on, there's the door. So, Jamila, you've written a lot about what women need to do, the the way they can speak up, be active. You've even looked at things like um, speech habits, body language, clothes, and all these practical tips. But I guess if things are going to change, you need men to be involved as well because as much as things have changed, men have still managed to cling on to all kinds of power and all kinds of situations yeah. to a quite bizarre degree. What do you want men to do? Be better. But it's really hard. <laughs> it's hard to be better. It really is, isn't it? Um, I think it's, it's got to come from a recognition uh, by men that they still hold a huge amount of power in workplaces. And we can talk about women pushing for change and women have been agitating for change for a very long time. But in the end, they're the group with less power, less institutional power. So I think it's up to blokes who understand this stuff, blokes who want to be good feminists, blokes who believe in equality um, to do better. And I think the simple first step on that is the most heinous stuff, which for me and there's a chapter in the book about this, about is sexual assault and sexual harassment in the workplace. I think starting there is really important because this is a space where for women to speak up, it is incredibly fraught. And there is a lot of pushback on women who speak out about sexual harassment and there's far less pushback on men. So if men are willing to call out inappropriate behaviour, call out the sexist jokes, uh, to report where possible, to make sure women are feeling safe and unharassed in workplaces, I think that's a really simple first step. On the day we were having this conversation, actually, Harvey Weinstein's just been sacked by his board, including his brother, uh, all male, as far as I can tell, that board, because of these this huge number of allegations and uh, things that he's actually confessed to. So there are examples, but the fact that someone like that, who's this this great Hollywood liberal, um, huge supporter of the Democratic Party over the years, Mm. doesn't that just confirm how how deep the problem still is, perhaps? Yeah, it's incredibly pervasive. I think violence against women, particularly here in Australia, is one of those great crimes that we don't like to admit how much of a problem it is and the depth of that problem. And interestingly, on Weinstein and the point I was just making, I've noted that there's a whole bunch of newspapers now saying that they've called up different Hollywood actresses who he's worked with in the past and been like, will you go on the record? Will you condemn him? Why aren't you speaking out? Not good enough from the famous Hollywood actresses who haven't spoken out. Who's calling the men? Who's calling Mm. the great male actors that he's worked with and said, why aren't you calling this out? 
you're powerful. I'm sure there are blokes who have seen what this guy was doing if the allegations are true. And Why don't least, we hear from them? More or less confess to them. So, mm-hmm. And so it's interesting, the whole movement for things like male champions of change and stuff like that, you see these CEOs who uh, bowl up and are quite proud of what they, you know, there's a little bit of ego reward in it for them. Do you yeah. think that's good? Do you think that stuff actually works if, if men are co-opted to think that, you know, you, you play into the existing ego reward system to yeah. reward this sort of behaviour? Yeah, look, it's really it's a really tough one, right, because we need men, particularly powerful men, to be part of the solution here. Yet when you've got women who've been working hard and agitating on these issues forever, who everyone just ignores or doesn't like, and then a bloke does exactly the same thing and suddenly he's a hero, that's a pretty painful thing to sit by and watch, right? I am of a pretty pragmatic school of thought, which goes, look, if there's a bloke who's getting a whole lot of praise for something women have been doing forever, but in the end, what he's doing is still a good thing, well, fine. You know, if that's the price we pay, which is stroking a few male egos to make sure that we actually get a difference, I'm okay with that. So look at the overall balance. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, you know, it's similar to um, in the parenting space on the kind of micro scale is you see these blokes who, you know, the few number of Australian blokes who have kids and um, become full-time dads, they get treated like they're gods. Do you know what I mean? They show up at the park and I've seen it. I've done it. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? You're, you're at home full time with your child? Oh, and your heart kind of goes fluttery. And then all the mothers at the playground go, you're amazing. Um, he is amazing. Yeah, he's doing exactly what the women did before him. But he is amazing because he's the first. The same way the first women who went into workplaces were doing exactly the same job as men. But they were remarkable because they were the first. So I'm happy to cop with a bit of praise that I've got to tell my husband he's phenomenal for doing things that I do every day if that means we start to shift the overall system. Because for me, the priority is shifting the system. So you've got a a toddler. How old's your son? He is two and four months. Do you think that the same kinds of praise and reward structures that work for him would work on men more broadly? <laughs> um, I think we'd have a lot more overweight men because chocolate is the most effective bribery tool with my son. But yeah, sure. I'm not sure if it's possible to have more overweight men. <laughs> well, look, normally at this point, Charles and I would confer about what to do with you and how to handle the situation. But I feel like I don't have any choice. I feel like we've just got to let you go. Oh, well, that's really good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Can you just remember... When the meritocracy comes in, can you just remember that even though we don't deserve to be here, we let you go? Yeah, I will definitely remember that. I think that's the best outcome we can hope for at this point. Thank you so much, Jamila Risby. The book is not just lucky and it's out now. Thanks, Dom. Extreme Vetting is recorded in the studios of Podcast One, written, presented and edited by Charles Firth and Dom Knight. The show is produced by Alex Mitchell, audio production by Nick Slater. The executive producer is Jamie Show. And to get in touch with us or for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app. And remember, no one is safe. <laughs>